Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Welcome to Red Round Blonde. This week, I wanted to focus on a story that deals specifically with domestic violence. To me, it's an important issue that I think most people don't want to talk about. It's very stressful for the person being abused, as well as for their loved ones. It's not just the one person that ends up suffering. It's something that spreads and infects everyone around it like a disease. And when someone is murdered due to domestic violence, the family and the loved ones left behind suffer for years after. In telling today's story, I wanted to get a few things across. One, just the fear that the person who is in the abusive relationship feels. They're always on their guard and they can never relax. And then secondly, I wanted to tell what happens to the loved ones of that person. The pain that they go through. So I chose the story of Dave Navarro's mother, Connie. In 1983, she and her best friend were brutally murdered by Connie's ex-boyfriend. Many people don't know about the murder because it's something that Dave Navarro kept personal for a long time and didn't discuss with the media, understandably. This happened before Jane's addiction. In 2013, Dave Navarro filmed a documentary with his best friend, director Todd Newman. It's called Morning Sun, and it's about the loss of Dave's mother and how it affected his life after. It's a story of grief, pain, and just the depths that one can fall into after losing someone that they love so dearly. Connie's story is so important to tell for so many reasons. And after knowing it, I think it's very important to share. This week, I'll discuss the murder of Connie Navarro. 
I got the majority of my info from the documentary Morning Sun and some of the actual court documents, which I found on caselaw.findlaw.com. So obviously, when I tell the story, I'm going to talk a lot about Dave Navarro, of course. If you're not familiar with him, he was the guitarist for Jane's Addiction. For a while, he was in the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Camp Freddy. Currently, he's on a TV reality show called Ink Master. Dave's life took a different direction due to this immeasurable loss that he suffered. And without knowing that pain, you just don't get the full impact of his story. And if you've never lost someone to death, man, just count yourself lucky. When you experience it, there's a lot of different components. There's your own pain, but then there's also the pain that you witness. You see how death affects the others that you love, and you're just absolutely helpless to stop this. And that, for me, was probably one of the worst aspects of dealing with death. When I watched this documentary, I felt Dave's pain so much. And not just his pain, so many people were devastated by his mother's death. Dave was only 15 when his mother's life was taken. My son is that same age now. From a mother's perspective, I watched what it did to a son, and that was awful. I don't want anyone to think that I'm exploiting Dave Navarro by talking about him. I just want to get across what this one act by a very manipulative, selfish narcissist did to the Navarro family and many others. I want to try to first paint a vivid picture of Connie. She was born Constance Colleen Hopkins in Detroit, Michigan on October 12, 1941. And Constance, known as Connie, began modeling right after school. She ended up becoming the most successful model at her modeling agency. If you look her up online, she was a stunning woman. Classic, refined features, as beautiful blonde hair. Just what you think of when you think of a model. It's no surprise that she caught the eye of James Mike Navarro, and he immediately asked her out. So together, Connie and Mike made this astounding couple with their good looks. And Mike matched Connie's intelligence with his exuberance for life. Soon, they married, and on June 7, 1967, in Santa Monica, California, they welcomed into the world their son, Dave. But as what happens in a lot of marriages, it didn't last, and they ended up getting divorced. However, they remained very close, and not just for the benefit of their son. They were friends. Dave has memories of them getting together frequently and having dinner just to catch up with each other. And from what others say, they both seem like genuinely really good people. Dave described his mother as a very spiritual person, very grounded, very earthy. She loved nature, loved children, and fitness. After splitting from Mike, she began to really find herself at this point in her life. Living on her own, Connie became the neighborhood mom to all the kids. She was the really cool mom who the kids loved. She was smart and sensitive, just drew everyone to her. The neighborhood loved her due to her generosity and good nature. Her neighborhood friend said that when she walked down the street, animals and children were just drawn to her, almost like she was Snow White. And in the dating world, Connie was a perfect catch. She was in great shape, beautiful, charismatic. What's not to love there? Neither Mike nor Connie had any problems finding new relationships. 
Dave got used to seeing various relationships that they went through. In 1980, Connie met the man who would change her life forever, but for the worse, John Alexander Riccardi, also known as Dean. Riccardi had his own place, but he began spending more and more time over at Connie's apartment. And at first, he seemed like a really good match for her. This guy was handsome, very well built, almost like a bodybuilder. The neighborhood kids who idolized Connie began to accept Dean as their friend, and they began to look up to him too. And most importantly, Dave accepted and liked the new man in his mother's life. Let me tell you, as a single mom who's been through this world of dating and having to introduce your son to a new man, this is a very difficult thing. You're crazy scared because you're afraid they won't like each other. And when they actually do, you are so relieved. The couple dated for a couple of years before things soured. They experienced a lot of fights and quite a few breakups. They would do this thing where they would break up, then get back together, and then repeat this whole process. But finally, in January of 1983, Connie made the breakup final, and she told Riccardi that she wanted nothing more to do with him. Dave Navarro said he wasn't quite sure exactly what caused the breakup thinks it might have been his mom finding out something about Riccardi's checkered past. See, he was a serial burglar who had served time for his crimes. And it might not have been just that, though. Many describe Riccardi as not just a con man, but a narcissist who knew how to work people. So I'm sure he was emotionally and probably physically abusive. When Connie wanted him out of her life, he just refused to accept this. It probably hurt his ego. He was the one who usually decided things, so how dare she refuse him? From that point on, he made Connie Navarro's life miserable. Riccardi began classic stalker behavior. It started with the hang-up calls. The phone would ring, but no one would be on the other end speaking before hanging up. And she warned everyone in the neighborhood that she and Riccardi had split and that it was not amicable at all. If they saw him in the area, that they should say something. Dave's teenage friends would see the guy parked up the street as if he was keeping watch on the apartment. And her friend Marilyn Young recalled Riccardi following her and Connie to a fitness center and silently watching them outside as they exercised. He seemed to be everywhere, staring at her with these angry eyes. Riccardi would do crazy things like pull wires from her car so it wouldn't start. And when she would get out to see what was wrong, there he would be, just staring at her. And there were times that she and Dave would come home, and he would just be there in the house. She would have to scream at him to leave. It got to the point where she was afraid in her own home. An alarm system was installed, but... You know, we're dealing with a burglar here, so it was pretty much to no avail. There were several incidents that took place that really showed how maniacal John Riccardi was. Connie met with George Hoffer, an executive at an ad agency, to talk about a possible job opportunity. They met for dinner at a restaurant, and when the dinner was over, they parted ways in the parking lot with a handshake and a kiss on the cheek. You know, nothing more than a business meeting. However, the next morning, George received an alarming phone call to his hotel room. The caller said that he was Connie's boyfriend and demanded to know why they had been kissing. 
this executive was perplexed. He was a happily married man. He had no salacious intentions. He tried to tell the man on the phone as much, but the caller would not hear it. He said that he would break her knees if they saw each other again. To really get this point across, he called again the next day saying that he knew George's flight itinerary and his home address and implied he was going to pay George's wife a visit. So knowing that all his personal information was on the papers in his rental car, George realized that Riccardi had broken into his car to get it. Once again, he tried to explain that this was just a business dinner, nothing romantic. He had no interest in Connie whatsoever. The caller seemed to calm down a bit and asked George not to mention the incident to Connie. But fearing for her safety, George immediately told her about what happened when he got home. I mean, now it wasn't just Connie he was terrorizing. It was anyone who encountered her. Not long after this incident, another horrific one occurred. Ever the burglar, Riccardi broke into the apartment again. The court documents said that he forced Connie to sleep with him, which essentially means he raped her. That same month, he messed with her car again. In February, she agreed to meet with Riccardi, most likely in the hopes of ending this harassment. Because she was so terrified of him, she made sure to meet him in public at a restaurant, and her friend, Marilyn Young, was going to pick her up afterwards. When Marilyn showed up, Riccardi pulled a gun on them and insisted Connie come with him. So fearing for her life and the life of her friend, Connie complied. They ended up in a hotel near Los Angeles where he forced Connie to stay. Finally, after this long weekend, he allowed her to leave, but who knows what she had to endure during that weekend. She was at his mercy. She couldn't leave, and if she didn't comply with him, who knows what he would do. Connie tried to defuse the whole situation by asking Riccardi to dinner with her, Marilyn, and Marilyn's boyfriend at the time. When talking about the situation, they asked him repeatedly to just forget about Connie and just let her live her life. He agreed, but in a very sarcastic manner, so it wasn't over yet. Connie had a best friend named Sue Jory. They'd been friends for decades and were so close that Dave called her Aunt Sue, even though they weren't technically related. The women were close like sisters. So one morning, Sue, Connie, and their friend Craig Spencer were having breakfast at a restaurant. And before they knew it, here comes Riccardi, sitting himself down at their table. What was so bizarre was he didn't speak a word. He simply stared at Connie. When the others tried to make conversation to lighten the mood, he just ignored them and continued to give Connie this death stare. Finally, after several minutes, he stood up, said, I can kill you anytime I want because you belong to me. Before he walked away, he made this motion of having an imaginary gun and shot at Connie's head. This was utterly chilling. Connie and all her friends knew how dangerous he was becoming, and now her neighbors were finding out too. When she was having some trouble with her sliding glass doors, she asked her neighbor, Carl Rasmussen, to come over and look at them. Carl found that the latch had been messed with, but the kicker was it would have had to have been accomplished from inside the apartment. Even after changing the locks and installing alarms, he was still getting inside. 
Connie considered just packing everything up and starting over somewhere else. It was all becoming too much. This woman, who once had so much life in her, was slowly being destroyed. She couldn't go anywhere. She couldn't see anyone. He was always there, watching. She composed a letter to express her feelings in hopes that it might spark some kind of sympathy in this man. It read, I'm sorry that you're still so angry and that you feel a need for vengeance and punishment. You're accomplishing your goal. I feel like a walking dead person going through the motion of life. Like a small wild animal who knows it's surrounded by a pack of wolves. The smallest sound or movement makes me jump. The sound of the phone now is frightening. Another hang up. I'm so locked up in my own house, afraid of every sound the walls have probably always made. I walk out of my house, a coffee shop, a gym, looking, terror, until I get into my car and I know that the doors are locked and I can breathe again until I get out. And then it starts all over again. How long is it going to go on? So as you can imagine, to someone who has most likely a sociopath in their life, this had no effect on his actions. In fact, he only ramped them up. Dave split his time between his parents' residences. And this day, Dave was homesick from school at Connie's. Every morning, his mom went out for a run. And not long after Connie went out, Dave heard someone messing with the sliding glass doors. He heard them being completely removed, so he looked out his window just to see Riccardi. Terrified, he ran to the bathroom to hide. At the time, Dave was just a teen, so you can imagine his terror. He heard Riccardi in the apartment. But Dave was smart, so he called out, Mom? Dean? Is anybody home? And when Riccardi emerged, Dave told him that he was scared because someone was trying to break in. And he faked relief that Riccardi was there. So then Riccardi went to examine the doors that he'd just broken into. Dave said that they were doing this fake acting to each other. They both know deep down that the other knew that they were lying, but kept on with the show. Then Riccardi motioned for Dave to come to the bedroom. When he did, he pulled out a gun from under the bed. He said he was upset about the breakup and that he was going to kill himself, but he was pointing the gun directly at David. And from there, he took Dave into the bathroom and handcuffed him around the toilet. The teen was screaming and crying for Riccardi not to do this. He remembers being face down in the toilet, just wondering what Riccardi was going to do next. When Connie came back from her jog, she saw Riccardi standing in her home. Dave said he heard his mother scream, where's my son? Dave yelled from the bathroom that he was all right. And downstairs, an intense argument broke out. Dave could hear someone being slapped. And finally, after what seemed like ages, Riccardi came to the bathroom and uncuffed him. He begged Dave not to tell his mother. And out of sheer terror, he never told anyone until after his mother's death. Dave recalls Riccardi being in tears. He said it was really odd how the man's emotions had changed so quickly. I think this just shows how Riccardi knew how to work people's emotions for his benefit. The weekend before that fateful night, Connie spent it out of her home. She'd been especially fearful after a friend had warned her that Riccardi appeared to be, quote, in a rage. She decided to get away for the weekend with Marilyn. 
but he was watching and he knew. When Marilyn came to pick her up, Riccardi was outside in his car. Initially, he followed them, but luckily gave up after a while. After returning from her weekend away, Connie decided that it was best to get away from this apartment, so she went to stay with Mike. Mike, of course, was very concerned about what his ex was going through. He suggested that she call an attorney that he knew to get a restraining order. And when Connie and Dave went to gather their things, unbeknownst to them, Riccardi was there, hiding in the closet. For whatever reason, he didn't make himself known. A mutual friend of Connie and Riccardi's later told her how he was hiding in the closet. This was the same friend who warned her to get out of town for the weekend. The day before the killings, Marilyn and her boyfriend at the time, who later became her husband, Sid, and Connie were all out at breakfast. Just like before, Riccardi appeared. Connie moved to another table with him to talk privately, but Marilyn could hear pretty much all of the conversation. Connie confronted him about breaking in, which he admitted to. Marilyn heard him say, I could hurt you right now and nobody would do anything. She then heard him say how he found the letter that Connie had written to him and wished he had known how she felt. He said he would leave her alone from now on, that she could go back home. Marilyn said that Riccardi looked awful, like he hadn't slept in days. She looked at him and suggested that he check himself into a hospital, but he... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. He just looked at her and laughed. Trusting Riccardi's word that he would leave her alone, Connie went back to her condominium. She was a good-natured person, and she tried to look for the best in people. However, Mike strongly advised her against this. She was welcome to stay with him as long as she needed, and if only if she had heeded Mike's advice. On March 3, 1983, Riccardi met with an old girlfriend named Stephanie and her friend Tony for dinner. She said Riccardi seemed severely agitated and would only talk about Connie. He showed her the letter that Connie had written to him. This woman was disturbed about how fearful Connie seemed in this letter, so she urged Riccardi to just leave Connie alone. Riccardi then asked her to make a phone call for him. If a young boy answered, she was to tell him that Riccardi loved him. But if a woman answered, she was to ask for Dave. Instead of anyone answering, it went to the answering machine, which enraged him. Stephanie said she thought she saw a gun in his car before he drove away in a rage. 
That same night, Connie planned to go to dinner with her friend Sue Jory and Marilyn. However, at the last minute, Marilyn had to cancel. Dave would normally be at Connie's, but due to a change of plans, he was at Mike's that night. The next day, no one could get a hold of Connie. Marilyn had this awful feeling that something was wrong, and Mike had this sinking feeling in his gut. He told Dave to sit still while he went to check on her since he had a key to Connie's place. Dan Navarro, Mike's brother, vividly recalls the phone call he received that day. It was from Mike, completely distraught, screaming for Dan to come to Connie's place. When Dan arrived, he said the place was surrounded with cops. Mike appeared, white as a ghost, saying that Connie was dead. Dan said he couldn't even fathom what was happening. He'd just seen Connie. But Riccardi had finally done it. What happened was when the women came back to Connie's, Riccardi was inside with a gun. And from there, an argument ensued. Neighbors thought that they heard a scream. Riccardi shot Connie twice, first in her chest. The bullet entered her lung and went out through her back. And the second bullet went in her chest, through her heart and spine before stopping in her ribs. Sue screamed at him to leave before being shot at point-blank range. It appears she put up her hands to shield herself because the bullet went through her left hand near her thumb, through her jaw and carotid artery, and exited out through her neck. And after killing the women, Riccardi appears to have moved them. He tried stuffing Connie inside a cabinet, and he drugged Sue into Connie's room. At first, Mike was a suspect until he told them everything Connie had been going through. Plus, Riccardi's fingerprints were all over the place. A skylight leading into the apartment was broken, most likely how he got in, and seeing the brutality of how the women had been shot, they knew who the killer was. Now, all the while, Dave's at his dad's wondering what's going on. It had been hours since his dad left to check on his mom. He knew something had to be very wrong. Finally, his dad returned home, but the police were with him. So he knew this was bad. And they broke the devastating news. And from that point on, Dave's life was forever changed. Back at Riccardi's apartment, police found three handguns, ammo, and a shotgun. But they didn't find the 38 handgun thought to be the murder weapon. Riccardi was on the run. And Mike and Dave were terrified as well as in deep grief. I mean, they were afraid that they were next. Dan Navarre insisted that they stay with him and not in their own home. So after this, Dave tried to cope with this crushing loss of his mother. The two had been so close. They were more than just a mother and son. They were very close friends. And without her, he didn't know what to do. He had tried drugs before, but not seriously. And now he found something that could take the edge off of this pain. And the only other comfort was his guitar. And those two things would be his future. One for the good, the other nearly destroying him. If you watch this documentary, you get a real understanding of Dave's mind. He goes to very dark places emotionally and mentally. He has a very dark sense of humor to deal with things, which I too have, so I understand. You see his descent into years of heroin addiction. 
and you hear testimony from his close friends about how awful this was. Many times he overdosed. And as his friend Todd puts it, he was a scary addict. And his father thought, honestly, that this would kill his son. By the time the band Jane's addiction began to start seeing success touring the world, all the while, Riccardi was still a fugitive. So when Dave played a show, he never knew if Riccardi might just show up to kill him. So just like his mother, he was now living in constant fear. After eight years on the run, with the help of a segment on America's Most Wanted with John Walsh, Riccardi was finally apprehended. Apparently, he tried to disguise his identity by getting plastic surgery. But it wasn't over. Now Dave and Mike had to deal with the trial and coming face-to-face in court with Connie and Sue's murderer. Riccardi tried to garner sympathy by wearing a hearing device, even though he didn't have any kind of hearing problems. It really reminded me of how the Golden State Killer used a wheelchair in court. These powerful men faking trying to get sympathy. There's a lot of footage in the documentary of the trial. And there's this one really heartbreaking shot of a young Dave, and he's sitting beside Mike. And you see Mike start to break down. And Dave puts this comforting arm around him with tears in his eyes. You just really see how hard this trial was on them. And as painful as it was, Dave testified at this trial. Rosemary Riccardi, who was Richard Riccardi's stepmother, also testified. She said after the murders, Riccardi told his father that he had done it. The jury didn't have any sympathy for Riccardi. After two hours, they returned with a deliberation, guilty of two counts of murder. He was sentenced to death. The sentence was overturned in 2012 due to an issue with a juror, but an appeals court upheld his life sentence. In a grueling segment of this documentary, Dave goes to prison to visit Riccardi. Now, as a viewer, you are freaking out because you just watched Dave go through this horrible addiction, and he finally has come clean. You see him in therapy, and you watch everything that he went through. So this idea of him confronting this monster just makes you scream at the TV for him not to do it because you just feel like he's going to undo everything he's done and just destroy himself emotionally. But in a bizarre way, this was a good thing for him. He said before, he only thought of his mother's murder. And then after visiting Riccardi, he started to think of her as just his mom. He started remembering all the good things, like how she would twirl her hair when she talked on the phone, or how she would read to him at night, her laugh. In a really great scene, he goes out to the desert with his artist, and he has her paint this beautiful portrait of Connie in his blood. It sounds weird, but it's a really great moment. So Dave seems to have healed a bit. And out of respect for Sue's family, they're not in the documentary. Riccardi sits in prison and will hopefully just suffer and die there. Man, this case was the one I had the hardest time covering. I don't know if it's because I watched the documentary and I saw what Dave Navarro went through, And it might have just been being a single mom to a teen and putting myself in her place. It might have been the testimony of all the people who knew and loved her and watching them just emotionally break down talking about her. It's probably a combination of all those things. She seemed like a really great person, like a really 
great person you'd want to know. And she didn't deserve an ounce of pain. And I hate that she went through any of this. It took me forever to write and do this research, and I had to step away so many times. It really affected me, and I got really depressed doing it. But when I was down, I could only imagine that feeling times a million, and then I wouldn't even get close to what Dave must have felt. I even had this recorded at one point, but I felt I just wasn't doing it right, and I wasn't doing her justice, so I'm re-recording it. And just the thought of a mother being taken from her son, who loves her so much, is almost too much to think about. You just, you have to watch this documentary. It's really a gut punch, but it's so good. And just do it to get such a wonderful sense of what Connie was like, the way everyone talks about her. And I can't do it justice on here. That was the murder of Connie Navarro. Now, I mentioned Sue as little as possible because it seems like her family just wants privacy. In recent years, Dave has become very outspoken as an advocate for women in violent situations. He's worked a lot with Mariska Hargitay, and he's also worked closely with Safe Horizons campaign called Put the Nail in It. I'm sorry, hashtag Put the Nail in It to help with those affected by domestic violence. You can donate to this to help. Their website is putthenailinit.com, and you can call 1-800-621-HOPE if you're experiencing trouble with domestic violence and you need help. There's so many places that you can reach out to if you're experiencing this. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or 1-800-799-SAFE. If you're in Pittsburgh and you need help finding a shelter, you can call 412-687-8005 for a 24-hour hotline. That's the Women's Shelter and Center of Greater Pittsburgh. Get help. These places will help you find sanctuary, get restraining orders, whatever it is you need. Just don't stay in these situations. I know it's scary to leave and do it for yourself. I know. I mean, I'm a single mom. I can imagine this. You can't just leave the man you're with. He's paying half the rent. You have bills. You've got to care for your kid. You don't want to end up homeless. But no woman deserves to be abused. As much as these abusers try to make you think that you do. I watched my mom deal with this shit when I was little. I mean, you don't have to stay in this. Get help. Not just for you, but for your family. But most importantly, for you. Don't stay in any kind of abusive relationship, even if it's just verbal. That man has no respect for you. I just recently had a conversation with someone about this, me and several other women. This beautiful woman, she's in this awful relationship. She, I guess, tried to kind of downplay it and say, well, yeah, he's verbally and emotionally abusive, but he's not really physically abusive. He only picked me up around my neck one time. But she's just so beaten down by this man in every way that she kind of sees herself as worthless. And I think that's a lot of what people don't understand. You know, why do these women stay? Well, it's, you know, almost like a Stockholm Syndrome kind of thing. There's so many economic, emotional, there's so many reasons why they stay. And until you're 
in a situation like that or you see a situation like that, you really have no room to judge. Anyways, I know this was a really heavy case, but I think it's the most important kind to get out there because this could help somebody. This could maybe encourage someone to get out of a bad relationship. This could maybe put up a red flag so someone doesn't even get into a relationship like this. I'm going to put these links on my Facebook page. And, you know, man, it's impossible to transition out of this. But as always, I want to welcome new members to the Red Run Blonde Facebook group. I want to welcome Kaylee and Melissa. I'm really excited to have you guys. And thanks to everyone who's left a really nice review on the page or iTunes or wherever. I just got a really nice one the other day. It was so cool. It just really lifts me up out of the blue. I really appreciate that. You guys go out of your way. That's awesome. So, you know, check out um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Join the Facebook group. I get really excited when anybody does. And thanks so much for listening and catch you all next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.